And you can take your Bibles and turn them to uh, Jonah chapter 2. This is uh, part 3 of our sermon series on Jonah, Scandalous Grace. And um, I debated how much time to, to, to spend on the hang-ups that people have about the book of Jonah because of the whole big fish story, swallowing uh, the prophet. Sometimes even Christians, even, even church people struggle with this. They have a hard time just uh, swallowing, pun intended, uh, this whole story. Um, now, I'm not going to really spend a lot of time on this. I'm, I'm just going to say one thing. If you have a hard time believing this particular story, let me just give you one thing that should help settle any issues you have about this once and for all. You ready for this? Ready for me to, to drop some wisdom here on you? Genesis 1 1. You know what that says? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, if you believe Genesis 1 1, you should have no trouble believing anything else in the scriptures. If you actually believe something as far out and crazy as I do, as a, a, an all powerful being who just by his very words, speaks, and the universe leaps into existence. If that's true, this here, what we're going to read today, that's a piece of cake for somebody like God. No big deal at all. So anyway, that's all I've got to say about that. Um, let's remember where we left off last time in the book of Jonah. The uh, book starts out with God telling Jonah to go to Nineveh and warn the people about God's coming judgment because of their great evil, and Jonah refuses because he is repulsed by the Ninevites. They are evil, and they are dangerous, and they are cruel, murderous barbarians, and they're, they're a threat to Jonah's own people, Israel. And so Jonah hates the Ninevites, and he doesn't want to warn them of God's judgment because he does not want them to receive God's mercy. He is scandalized by this idea of grace for them. He wants the Ninevites to be vaporized, and that desire for the destruction of his enemies becomes more important to him than anything else, even more important than God. And therefore, when he receives a word from God telling him to do something he doesn't like, Jonah runs from God, better to run from God and get what I want than to embrace God, even if it means denying myself what I want. And so we're told in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. He finds a boat headed to Tarshish, which is to the, as far to the west of Nineveh as he can get. That's, we're talking about Spain. And he thinks that he's fine now and that he has outmaneuvered God. But as we saw last week, God pursues Jonah, and he causes a great storm to come upon the ocean, and the, the pagan crew is terrified, and they pray to their false gods for help, and that doesn't work. Then they come to Jonah, and Jonah tells them that the storm is his fault. He's disobeyed God, he's running from God, but Jonah in his stubbornness refuses to repent of his sin. He'd rather die, and so he tells the sailors to cast him into the ocean, and if they do that, they'll be safe. And reluctantly, the sailors do this. And as soon as Jonah is thrown overboard, as soon as he hits the water, the sea is calm, and the boat is saved. And the pagan sailors who were earlier praying to false gods, now they've come to know the one true God, and they're worshiping Him. And from the perspective of these sailors, Jonah is a dead man. He's beneath the waves. 
and they never see him again. Perhaps they even had a, a memorial service for Jonah on the boat as they witnessed what is essentially a burial at sea. And in one sense, if that's the case, if they did that, they're right. Jonah is buried. He is buried alive and will be for the next three days. And so let's see what happens next. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. And let's actually uh, back up a verse and start at um, verse 17 of chapter 1, and we'll read on down through the end of chapter 2. The word of the Lord says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the, to, the, to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that as we look at and think about and meditate on this very strange story this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to see what word you have for us in all of this. There's a word here that is relevant to everybody in this room this morning. So Father, I pray that you would speak and you would get this old weak preacher out of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I woke up out of a dead sleep in the middle of the night, unable to breathe. I had no idea what was going on. My lungs were moving, but as far as I could tell, no oxygen was getting in there. Every time I'd inhale, I'd I'd hear just this strange, raspy, gurgling kind of noise. And as I was sitting up in the bed there trying to get oxygen into my lungs with my wife sitting up beside me in the bed with her hand on my back, I, I remember just the briefest of flashes running through my mind thinking, this is it. If I can't breathe, I'm gone. And after what seemed like forever, although I'm sure in real time it was only a few moments, my airways cleared up and I was able to get uh, oxygen again. And all I could do was just sit there for a while and gather myself. And I was so shaken up by that experience that I was afraid to go back to sleep. And instead, I went online. 
which you know consulting Dr. Google to diagnose yourself is always a wonderful and encouraging thing to do because you're going to end up with every disease in the book if you do that. But I discovered, and it was confirmed by a doctor, that it was simply some sort of acid reflux issue, and it really wasn't all that serious. But let me tell you something. You bolt up out of a dead sleep at 2 a.m., unable to breathe, and nothing in the world seems as serious as that. There are few things in the world that are as terrifying as the inability to breathe. Some of you have been through that kind of experience, and And just the sheer sense of helplessness that it brings and the sense of fragility that it brings. And you also know the sense of relief and gratitude that comes when suddenly you're able to to get that breath that you were looking for. That is something like what happened to Jonah, but much worse. Jonah was drowning. And in that moment of terrified helplessness, he was certain that this was the end and, and that it was all his fault because Jonah had been a man on the run. Jonah had thought that life away from God would be just fine. But as he is sinking further and further down into the depths and those last bits of oxygen are passing out of his lungs and out of his bloodstream, he realizes to his terror that he has just made a terrible mistake. In his sin, he has abandoned the living God, and the price is higher than he is willing to pay. But it is too late, or so it seems. Jonah has been on the run, but God has been pursuing. And God pursues Jonah not to harm Jonah, but to show grace. And in verse 17, he is swallowed by this great fish, this fish which John Calvin calls a a hospital of sorts in which Jonah receives spiritual healing. And in Jonah's terrifying experience, recounted here in our text today, there are at least a few things, at least four things we learn about how God deals with spiritual runaways And in these three things, we learn a lot about God, and we learn a lot about our relationship with Him. And the first thing that I want us to notice in our text today is that God shows His grace through His merciful wrath. Look at verse 1 in chapter 2. It says, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now, this whole prayer in chapter 2 is a prayer of reminiscence, and thanksgiving as he's looking back and recounting what happened. He is thanking God for rescuing him, not rescuing him from the fish, but rescuing him by the fish. This great fish is an instrument of God's rescue. And, so, and this prayer turns out to kind of be a, a, a flashback of sorts to what he had just went through. This, this rescue that he experienced. And, it, and really, this rescue that God brings is not just a physical rescue. Jonah's time in the fish causes him in this prayer to reflect back on everything. Uh, and, and so this is kind of a spiritual rescue and a, and a reawakening in the wake of God's grace that has been shown to him. And so look at verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress... And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Sheol 
is the grave. It's the place of the dead. Jonah is saying that in that moment, under the waves, he saw himself as good as dead. Verse 3, For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. Now that's interesting. Because if you go back to chapter 1, it says that the sailors cast him into the waters at Jonah's request. But Jonah here in chapter 2 says, you, God, cast me into the deep. Jonah rightly recognizes and discerns the Lord's sovereign hand in this situation. He sees that the sailors who cast him into the sea were merely agents unwittingly doing what God had sovereignly deemed should happen to Jonah. It's the Lord's doing. Look at what he goes on to say, end of verse 3. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Sounds a lot like what I just read in Psalm 42. All your waves and breakers passed over me. Again here, Jonah recognizes that God is doing this. He says, your waves and your billows passed over me. He sees himself as being crushed by the heavy hand of God for his disobedience. And Jonah realizes that this terrifying experience is none other than the painful discipline of God coming into his life. It is God's merciful wrath. A phrase coined by Martin Luther, who contrasted it with God's wrath of severity. God's wrath of severity is poured out upon the unbeliever as ultimate judgment for sin, finally and fully expressed in eternal destruction in hell. But his wrath of mercy is God's heavy hand of discipline on his child, not for the purpose of destruction, but for the purpose of restoration, for the purpose of bringing that wayward spiritual runaway who was on the road to ruin back into the safety and comfort of God's loving arms. As one preacher said, there are times when a Christian can wander so far from the path of faithfulness to God when the virus of rebellion has spread so vigorously through our spiritual system that nothing but the merciful wrath, wounding medicine, can affect the cure. Sometimes God must bring us to the end of ourselves before we're ready to turn back to Him. Isn't that true? Maybe some of you know what that's like. Maybe, maybe once you wandered away from God and you ignored the pleas of other Christians telling you to repent and you ignored the warnings found in God's Word telling you to change course. And what did you do? You just kept hitting the spiritual snooze button over and over and over again. And the only thing that woke you up was God permitting calamity in your life. Something very hard and something very painful. Could be a sickness. Could be a spouse threatening to leave you. Could be a car accident after a night of drinking. It could be a whole host of things. But the purpose of God allowing you to hit rock bottom is not out of meanness. It was out of kindness. Because he knew that only when you hit the bottom would you actually look up and turn to him because there was nowhere else to go. And hitting rock bottom turns out to be God's mercy, an expression of God's grace. I'm reminded of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, uh, the story about the young man who desired to go away from the presence of his father because he thought life would be so much better on his own. 
and after using up his money and wasting his life on worldly pursuits, finds himself in the pig pen, begging for food, begging for scraps. It's only after he has fallen so far and felt so much pain that he comes to his senses and realizes the foolishness of his choice, and he goes back to his father. If you're here this morning as a Christian, but on the run from God in your heart, or maybe you're listening to this on the internet, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, God has sent me into your life right now to tell you to stop running and return to God. Turn away from the things that are destroying you. Because if you don't, I promise you, I guarantee you, that God will come upon you with a merciful wrath, with tough discipline. I think it, was, um, I think it might have been Spurgeon who said that God will not allow his child to sin successfully. He will intervene. So turn back to God now, lest you find yourself sinking into the deep, hitting rock bottom. Because God is a God who disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God's discipline is painful, but it is beneficial, and it is loving. And Jonah needs discipline, big time. In his arrogant defiance, he essentially said, I want nothing to do with you, God. And God said, fine. You want life without me? You want to know what that's like? You want to know what it is to to be detached from my word? Well then, here it is. You can have it, and good luck with that. And God expels Jonah into the watery depths into Sheol. Folks, this is like a proto-form of church discipline before there was a church. God in judgment has turned Jonah over to himself. Jonah wanted a life apart from God and his word. And to Jonah, choosing a path different than what God called him to seemed good. It seemed right. The Proverbs fourteen twelve says, There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. To abandon God is like cutting yourself off from oxygen cutting yourself off from life. And yet time and again, God calls us to follow him in obedience to the things that he's called us to in the scriptures. And time and again, we do not trust him. We think we know better. Jonah and people today try to find in life anything and everything outside of God, and it's futile. It's no better than drowning in the middle of the ocean. It's like, as Jesus said, trying to build a strong and stable house on shifting sand. It never works. The life you try to build outside of God's will is a house of cards, and eventually it'll collapse. And the only place that you will find peace and security and final safety is by building our lives on the solid foundation of God's word, on the things that he has said. Now, as we discussed last week, the the sea, the oceans, the waves, often in the scriptures, these are signs of God's judgment. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And as those waves close over his head, Jonah is experiencing something of what it means to be out of fellowship with the Lord. And here we see that Jonah, as his life is ebbing away in the belly of Sheol, he learns something very important. Jonah thought that the worst thing in the world was not getting what he wanted. You see, Jonah had an idea of what his life should be like. He created in his mind an alternate life plan different than the plan that God had had for him. A life away from Israel, a life away from the people of God, a life in Spain, maybe sitting on the beach with one of those uh, umbrella drinks, in in, in retirement from prophetic ministry. A life where he thinks he would be free from his call to go to Nineveh and preach there. Jonah thinks that that kind of life without God is better. And to not get what he wanted, that had become in his mind the worst thing in the world that could happen. But as the waters of God's judgment close in over his head, he panics. And he realizes what the worst thing in the world is, and it's not drowning. It is instead what he says in verse 4. I am driven away from your sights. That's the same kind of language used in Genesis 3.24 that talks about Adam being driven away from paradise, being exiled from the presence of God. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't omnipresent. The Bible says that God is everywhere. Instead, to be cast out from the presence of God means to be cut off from the enjoyment, the peace, the satisfaction, the comfort, the joy, the stability, the security that comes from being in relationship with God. The, the CSB uh, version translates verse 4 as saying, I have been banished from your sight. It's the image of a, of a noble and just king who, d- upon declaring a rebel as guilty, has now expelled from the kingdom and from the benefits of that king. He's expelled that traitor away. He goes on to say, In verse 4, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Now, some scholars think that that should be translated with a question mark. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? And there's at least one Bible translation I'm aware of that supports that rendering. And indeed, to put a question mark there seems to be a a better fit with this section of prayer where Jonah is recalling his utter despair. That's the whole point of this section. Other scholars believe that the latter half of verse 4 is better understood without the quotation marks. That's probably in your version of the Bible. And so in that sense, Jonah breaks away from his recollection of his despair in the water and interrupts the story with spontaneous thanksgiving because in the fish he knows that he's been rescued and he's not banished from God. And now he eagerly anticipates the time where once again he will look upon God's temple and enjoy fellowship and communion with the Lord again. Now, however you want to translate that, the overarching point is really the same. That in this horrifying experience of sinking deeper into the ocean depths, we are learning with Jonah that the worst thing in the world is not drowning. And the worst thing in the world is not being denied the things that you think you want out of this life. Being denied of your hopes and of your dreams. Instead, the very worst thing is to not have God in your life. And that if having more of God in your life means being denied other things that you may want, it's actually a good deal. 
It's actually worth it. This is what Jesus was getting at when he said that the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field that a man finds. And in his joy, he sells everything he has to get that treasure. That's how valuable having God is. It's like having and enjoying the most valuable treasure in the universe, and Jonah has been neglecting treasure and chasing trinkets. And now as he's sinking down, he doesn't care about the trinkets, and he longs for the treasure, and he feels that it's too late. Jonah feels driven away from the presence of God, the very presence, ironically enough, that he was trying to escape And when God gives him what he wants, Jonah finds himself feeling more lost and hopeless than he has ever been. Nothing is worse than banishment from God. Nothing is worse than being turned over to your sinful desires. That's a foretaste of hell. This is a hell-like experience for Jonah. And as he sinks to the bottom, he feels undone. John MacArthur says that Jonah is trapped in a hell of disobedience. He's trapped in a hell of unfulfillment. He is really right where he should be because when you're out of God's will, this is exactly what you get every time. And for the first time in this book, Jonah wants something that we haven't seen him want before. He wants God. Again, it's not the prospect of drowning that is his greatest source of anxiety. It is instead the fear that he has lost God forever. And he laments that, I have been driven. I have been banished from your sight. And so Jonah continues to sink down. And in verses 5 and 6, he is now sunk as low as he can go. Look at verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. At this point, there is a sense of finality. He's at the ocean floor. His body almost being mummified. The seaweed wrapped around his head. He has reached the belly of Sheol. And the poetry here is pretty powerful. Where the gates of the realm of the dead are closing with an echoing clang. And the lock is turned into place. And there is no way out. And it is all over. But, into verse 6. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And so we see another aspect of God's grace. He shows his grace through a spectacular rescue. Verse 7 says, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Friends, this is the first time in the whole story that Jonah prays. Jonah doesn't say a word to God in chapter 1. The pagans pray, but Jonah's silent because he's on the run. He can't talk to the one he's trying to escape. And sometimes... It takes nothing less than God's painful discipline, his merciful wrath, us hitting rock bottom for us to finally call on the name of the Lord. God mercifully allowed Jonah to go to the very edge of death because it was only in its helpless extremity that he finally remembered God. It was like 
proud, arrogant Jonah had to be brought back to the beginning of his spiritual existence, in a sense. He had to realize his helplessness, his deadness, his futile life apart from God. And at the bottom of the ocean, his spiritual eyes were open, and he became aware of his dreadful condition and his inability to rescue himself and his need for nothing other than grace, the grace of God, to deliver him. And friends, we know what that's like. That's how every Christian in this room was saved. We recognize our dreadful, helpless state apart from God. We recognize our dead condition, and we call on His name to be saved from our sin and to be saved from the judgment we deserve. We know we can't save ourselves, and we call out on another to save us and give us grace. And then Jonah says here, I prayed, and then God answered Because as far as Jonah had run, as low as Jonah could sink, friends, if God has his hand on you, if God is determined to save you, if God is determined to use you, you cannot outrun God. You cannot outrun grace. Maybe you have some friends or some family members who who know the Lord, but for whatever reason, they're in a season of running. Jonah chapter 2 should bring you some hope and some encouragement. Once God has determined to save someone, it will be impossible for them to finally escape God's loving grip. God will never let them go. Because wherever they will be, God will be. As the psalmist says in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there it is, Sheol, the grave, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So keep praying for that wayward, backslidden son or daughter or husband or wife or parents. If they belong to God, they will come back to God, even if it takes a merciful wrath to do it, because he loves his children. Indeed, let Jonah chapter 2 be a source of hope for all of us. The inability to hide from God that was at one time a source of frustration for Jonah is now sweet comfort. Wherever we are, whatever we are going through, whatever trial that we are in, no matter how alone we feel, God is there. He will give us the grace we need to make it through as we call on his name. Notice if you go back up to chapter 1, verse 17, it says that the Lord had appointed a fish to swallow Jonah. Appointed a fish. It's interesting. When Jonah cried out for help, God wasn't scrambling around trying to figure out, how am I going to get Jonah out of this mess? Even before Jonah had prayed, God had already appointed the means of rescue. Even while Jonah was in the height of his rebellion, sleeping in the boat in chapter 1, that fish was out there swimming around, standing by, ready to do what God had appointed it to do. We see here God as the planner and initiator of salvation. Again, more grace. More grace. It reminds me of the gospel, uh, what the gospel says when it tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God wasn't waiting for us to get our act together before he prepared the deliverance. 
He prepared the deliverance and then worked in our lives in such a way that when we hit the bottom and called on the name of the Lord, the appointed salvation, the appointed provision had already come. Indeed, before the foundation of the earth, before even man rebelled against God, the rescue plan was already firmly established as Christ had been appointed in eternity past to be our rescue when we turn to him. Verse 8, Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Jonah's experience here has stirred up within him an increased sense of the value of God versus the worthlessness of idols. That word, steadfast love, that's the Hebrew word uh, hesed, which refers to God's covenant faithfulness to his people, to Israel. And Jonah's rebuke in verse 8 seems not to be so much as to the pagan Gentiles, but to Israel itself, uh, his own people, a nation that, while looking down with prejudice upon the Gentiles, had themselves gone astray and largely followed after other gods. They were trying to find their hope. They're trying to find their identity and life and other things. And here, Jonah's admitting that apart from the true worship of God, it doesn't matter what people you belong to, what your genealogical credentials might be, what your religious pedigree is. If you turn away from God, you are rejecting his hesed, his covenant love, his grace. You're rejecting that in favor of something that you think is better. That's not only what the nation did, that's what Jonah did. And as Jonah confesses the truth about God and his value in his heart, God answers Jonah's prayer. And so God shows his grace through his merciful wrath and through a spectacular rescue. He also shows his grace through his kind restoration. His kind restoration. Look at verse 9. Jonah says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. When we experience and see the grace of God at work in our own lives, it leads to thanksgiving and worship. Show me a person who is not thankful. Show me a person who has a tendency to grumble and complain about everything, and I will show you somebody who has yet to really understand the grace of God. Somebody might say, well, well, that's just my personality bent. Well, that's your personality bent. It's bent towards sin. If you are a grumbler and a complainer, that should be a red flag that you do not have the sense or awareness of God's grace to you as you should. That's why legalistic people are often angry grumblers and complainers. They're they're thankless fault finders. They have a deficient understanding of God's grace towards them, and so they struggle to apply that grace to their own lives or to other people. But Jonah, in this moment, in the belly of the fish, spared from an end of rotting on the ocean floor, being picked apart by sharks, has a heightened awareness of his hopeless state and God's gracious rescue. And he realizes in that moment that he really has nothing to complain about and everything to be thankful for. Jonah goes on to say, what I have vowed, I will pay. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but it has to do with some prior commitment Jonah made to the Lord, probably his commitment to be a prophet, to be God's spokesman, to receive and speak God's word. 
That's the very thing he was running from. But when you receive much grace from God, the result is obedience to God. Sometimes people think that God's grace means we have the freedom to disobey. But that's not the purpose of grace. We're not sa- the Bible says, yes, we are not saved by works, but it also says we are saved to works that God has prepared for us in advance to do. It's Ephesians chapter 2. And the purpose of grace is not just to save us, but to transform us. And God's grace here is serving its purpose in bringing Jonah to a place of obedience where he is now finally willing to go to Nineveh and proclaim the word of the Lord. This is the grace of God. God could have easily let Jonah drown, and he would have been right to do so. You want life without me? Here it is, and you will never serve me again. You will never be used by me again. You don't deserve to serve me. But friends, grace isn't about deserving. Grace is unmerited, undeserved favor and blessing. It's not based on past performance. You see, friends, God is not like us. We treat people based not on grace, but based on works. If somebody disappoints us or lets us down once or twice, well, maybe we'll let them squeak by a couple times. But if they do it again, often we are done with them and we wash our hands of them. They offended me, they failed me, they let me down, they hurt my feelings, and we may not wish them dead, literally, but we treat them as dead, as people who are rotting on the ocean floor. That happens in marriages, happens in parenting, it even happens in the church. We are supposed to be a people saved by grace. And yet we build our relationships with other people on the foundation of works. And thank God that he's not that way with Jonah and he is not that way with you. God restores Jonah to service and he gives Jonah back his ministry. And some of you who know the story of Jonah in its entirety may be disturbed at this point. Because you know the end of the story. And by the time you get to chapter 4, Jonah seems to have regressed and failed again, like he hasn't learned anything at all. We're going to have to deal with that. Here's the amazing thing. God restores Jonah to ministry not only in spite of his past failure, but with the full knowledge that Jonah will let him down again and again. And that unsettles us because we don't do human relationships that way. You've let me down before. I know you're going to let me down again. You're not going to change. And so you know what? I'm finished with you. You're dead to me. Folks, we treat people like that more often than we think. And to the degree that we do that, that's the degree that we have fallen short of really understanding and appreciating the grace of God in our own lives. Because God has saved you not only in spite of your past failures, but he has saved you with the full knowledge of all of the ways you're going to fail him in the future. And he loves you anyway. And that's a grace that is scandalous. And Jonah, after reveling in the grace that he has received, ends his prayer with this final declaration, salvation belongs to the Lord. And here, Jonah is acknowledging two things. One, Jonah is acknowledging in this statement uh, God's sovereignty and salvation. That salvation is the prerogative of the Lord's. 
God will have mercy on whomever he wants to have mercy on, and Jonah can't dictate that. Jonah can't decide who should hear the gospel and who shouldn't, who should be punished and who shouldn't, who should receive grace and who shouldn't. Salvation is exclusively God's domain. We don't decide those things. That's above our pay grade. God doesn't consult with us about these matters. His responsibility is salvation. Our responsibility is to proclaim the message of salvation wherever he sends us. Second thing Jonah's statement tells us is that there is no other Savior but the one true God. Salvation, life, hope, peace, satisfaction, joy, fulfillment, forgiveness, these are the things that everyone longs for, and there is only one place that they can be ultimately found, and that is in the Lord. And in this strange story of Jonah's descent into Sheol, his three days in the fish, and his expulsion onto dry land, we see another manifestation of God's grace. God shows us his grace through a future Savior. What God did for Jonah was grace, but it points to an even greater scandalous grace. Jesus Christ, looking back on this very story that we read today, refers to this event as the sign of of Jonah. Not that Jonah brings a sign, but that Jonah is the sign as he, as we'll see next week, walks the streets of Nineveh alive and well after being in the belly of Sheol, buried alive for three days and three nights. Jonah is going to be to them the sign of God's power and might and amazing grace. And in Matthew chapter 12, It says that some of the scribes and Pharisees, some of Jesus' enemies, answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And the point is, is that when you see the sign, when you see a formerly dead person emerging from the tomb after being in it for three days and three nights as a corpse, you don't ask, will you show me a sign? That is the sign. There is no greater sign of God's grace and mercy and saving power than that. When Jesus Christ, who is God, comes to the world as a man and he goes to the cross and he experiences something worse than Jonah. Jonah feels like he has been cut off from God and driven from his presence. But Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, is experiencing an abandonment by God. And it far exceeds anything that Jonah experienced. Jonah's experience was like hell. Jesus' experience was hell. As Christ suffered the full punishment of God towards sin. Not, not his own sin, because he had none, but for the sins of the world. You see, unlike Jonah, Jesus did not deserve any of this. Jonah thought he was as good as dead. But God graciously spared him. And yet God the Father did not spare Jesus, his own son. Jonah was on the very edge of death. But someone greater than Jonah went all the way. Jesus' breath left his body, and he descended into Sheol, into the tomb. 
And he was there for three days and three nights. And yet, Jesus is greater than Jonah. Jonah didn't want to die, but Jesus willingly laid down his life and he took it up again. And as he walks out of the tomb, he becomes the sign of God's grace and mercy to sinners. A grace that declares to all liars and all cheaters and all adulterers and all murderers and all arrogant religious snobs and greedy politicians and drug addicts and self-centered people and gossips and runaway prophets and you and me and anyone who has disregarded any word in this book. Grace declares to such a people that salvation has come. And that salvation is found in the Lord Jesus. Jesus, whose very name, Yeshua, actually means what Jonah said in verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. And all who trust in him never have to fear Sheol. Never have to fear the grave. Never have to fear God's judgment. Because the innocent Christ has been judged on behalf of the guilty. Friends, that is scandalous grace. That's love. And whether you are a Christian on the run from God or whether you're not a Christian at all, the solution for both of you is the same. Receive the grace of God. And as you do, you can experience the peace and the joy and the security that comes with knowing that you have been received by Him. And if you have been received by Him, you can know that He will never, ever let you go. Because salvation is of the Lord, and it's by grace, and grace alone. Let's pray.